Hello, I'm Alex Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the 49th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be talking about the last days of the Bukmoki. So to start, there are a couple of announcements. Two weeks ago was our third anniversary, and to celebrate, I uh, redesigned my website and relaunched my Patreon. Um, while I love researching, writing, scripts, and recording episodes, it's hard to do without money. Um, unfortunately, we still live in a capitalist society. You still need money. Um, even when I'm borrowing materials from the library, I still need to pay for things like web hosting costs, subscriptions such as Canva, food, travel, etc. Um, if you enjoyed my last two seasons and are intrigued by what I'll be covering next, then please join my Patreon. Not only will you be supporting me, but you'll gain early access to my episodes, listen to exclusive content, watch more behind-the-scene videos, um, and even get a shout-out in my episodes. And you'll get a front row seat to the chaos that is me, someone with undiagnosed ADHD, trying to manage a podcast that focuses on one subject per season. And speaking of chaotic, undiagnosed ADHD, I just created a TikTok. My username is Pepper the Phoenix, which is also the name I use for all my writing accounts. I made the TikTok at like two in the morning one night, and I was too tired to try to think of a name that would merge both my writing persona and my history persona so I just use pepper I'm going to post a mixture of videos about my writing but also um, short videos about you know the topics I'm talking about on the podcast and I've also introduced a puppet professor Rupert Massey who is also a crocodile so you know if you want to see me talking to my puppet follow me on tiktok and now that the begging for money part is over it's time for the making history segment you may have heard of the restrict act better known as the TikTok ban, which is why I joined it, right? Join it before it gets banned. But it's also known as the Senate Bill 686 and is currently sitting with the Senate right now. Um, and if it passes, we'll be dealing with the Patriot Act on steroids. There are several articles that have been written, but some of the best information I found have been shared on TikTok. There is a disability act, Imani, Barbarin on Twitter, her username is at Imani Barbarin. On TikTok, her username is Crutches and Spice, and she's just fantastic, and I love her, and she's amazing. She has shared a number of videos um, explaining why the Restrict Act is so bad. So the first video is by at she, GYK3D, and basically he read through the entire bill, and uh, which you can read too. Is just go to congress.gov and search for the bill Senate 686. So you can read it for yourself and see that we're not lying. But basically what it does is that it gives the White House and the Department of Commerce full access to your home networks, your cloud, your data service, your machine learning, your content delivery services, your desktop, mobile, payment, web app applications, as well as like your desktop, your phone, your laptop, your Xbox, your PlayStation, your Twitch, anything that connects to the internet this act technically gives the White House and the Commerce Department um, access to. The idea of the bill is to quote-unquote protect us from dangerous information from quote-unquote foreign adversaries like Russia, China, Venezuela, North Korea, and Iran. 
But the language of the bill gives the White House, Congress, the Department of Commerce, the ability to define what a foreign adversary is. They also give them the power to do pretty much anything to enforce this act. So if you're using a VPN to watch something from Russia, if this bill passes, um, you could be facing 20 years jail time and fines ranging from 250000 to a million because you used a VPN to access information from a foreign adversary, thus risking U.S. security. And then finally, another video by KY Lawyer. It says the same thing. They can audit your desktop apps, your mobile apps, your gaming apps, your payment apps, your web-based apps, so any software connecting with or communicating via the internet, any hardware or uh, services integral to hosting data that connect or communicate with the internet. Um, it's all at the whim of the Secretary of the Commerce Department, who can basically do whatever they want to get info from people. Again, he can just cover his tracks by claiming, oh, it's a national security threat, which will also make it harder to file any lawsuits against this bill, just like it was hard to file any lawsuits against the Patriot Act. Another thing that is scary is that this bill is designed to hide information from us. So Congress's only role is to pass the bill, and then they can add enemies to the enemy list. But they don't have any oversight in terms of how it's, how it's applied. There is no requirement from the Commerce Department or the White House Department to share information in terms of who is being targeted by the bill. You know, Why are they banning TikTok? Why would they want to ban Twitter, for example? Why do they need to collect our data? Like, There's no information sharing required. And so again, the government can just decide, oh, you used a VPN to watch some video, and you're a person of color, and maybe you're not a full citizen, maybe you have a green card, we're going to target you. So this is bad on many levels. You know, there's a lot of researchers who are accessing information from these countries. A lot of people have done open source information, intelligence gathering on the Ukrainian battlefield, and some of that is by accessing Russian sites and Russian information. It not only prevents us from learning information from our government in terms, to, in terms of how the government plans to surveil us, it also prevents us from reaching out to other parts of the world to get information. Um, and so it's not just a TikTok ban. It is so much bigger than a TikTok ban. It's an information ban. It is a surveillance bill. It is a bill designed to try and control how we're accessing information and who we're communicating with. Um, so it's, it's horrible. It's a very dangerous bill. Do not buy into the hype that it's just going to affect TikTok or Gen Z or whatever. They're just using that to hide the fact that they are trying to control how we access information. They're trying to control how we use our own devices, and they're trying to just get even more data from us. And the other thing I will add is that they are worried, quote-unquote worried, about China data mining its users when Facebook has done that to us for years, Twitter has done that to us for years, Instagram does that. Like, the U.S. government has used tech companies to spy on its own citizens for, I think it's decades at this point. I'm trying to think back to when that was 9-11, 2001, which is a very long time ago now. The government, the U.S. government has been doing this for years, and all of a sudden China's the threat. And then the other, other thing I will add is that there is a big push, right? There's a big push. Republicans are mitigating the danger that Russia is posing because of Ukraine, because for whatever reason they don't want Ukraine to survive but they are amplifying the danger, quote-unquote, danger that China poses to us. And that's also why this bill is being framed the way it is, right? It's this evil TikTok, it's evil China, they're trying to spy on you. It's just an excuse to pick a fight with China because of a combination of xenophobia, um, warmongering, and if we're at war, 
they can use powers to suppress uh, dissension. And also, we're just, we have so many things going on. If you add a war, like an active firing, you know, an active war that the U.S. is actively sending troops in that is bigger than some of the engagements that the U.S. is involved in, such as like Somalia and Syria and Yemen. Um, by the way, yeah, we have troops there, by the way. We still have troops in Syria. I just found that out like two weeks ago. If you do a really big scale war like that, it just distracts us further from our failing government, our failing infrastructure, COVID, um, the fact that the U.S. government has like just abandoned immune compromised people and old people and just children to die. You know, it's just a, a war is a good way to distract from all the problems at home. So there's a lot of reasons why this bill is being pushed. There's a lot of reasons why this bill is bad. Please do your research. Check out the um, people that I mentioned who shared the information on TikTok. Check out Imani Barberin, not just for uh, information about the Restrict Act, but just information about how we have failed disabled people and immune compromised people so badly and what we can do to try and advocate um, basically for each other. So once you follow all those people and you do the research, you need to call your senators at this point and beg them not to pass the Restrict Act and not to pass anything that resembles the Restrict Act because there's a number of bills in the, in the House right now that are being discussed. Interesting, a lot of Republicans and a lot of far-right people hate this bill because it doesn't quote-unquote go far enough. So they're creating new bills um, that are going through the House right now. So even if this bill defeats, we've got like five other bills coming up through the House. And of course, it's going to pass the House because the House is run by white supremacists and fascists right now. So we know the bills are going to pass. They have to die in the Senate. And the other thing we have to look out for is if this version fails, the Republicans are just going to break it up into smaller bills and then they're going to slip it in. And we can't let that happen either. So you need to call your senators. The generic number is 202-224-3121. And then I think it asks for either your street address and your um, zip code, or it will ask for like, you know, if you know your senator's extension, but that's like the switchboard. Basically call 202-224-3121 and it will re redirect you to your senator. And then you need to ask your senator not to pass the Restrict Act and explain why it's so dangerous and tell them like you're not worried about China spying on you or you're not worried about TikTok, you're worried about COVID is still happening and Biden just dismantled his emergency, the White House emergency COVID reaction team. You're worried about gun violence. You're worried about the attack against trans rights. You're worried about the dismantling of abortion rights. You're worried about rising fascism and suprem white supremacy in the United States. Like, Tell them that their focus needs to be on the things that actually matter, not this stupid bill. And now, sort of an awkward pivot uh, to the last days of the Basmachi. Part 1, Recovering from Enver Pasha, the 1923-1926 campaign. When we last left the Basmachi, Enver Pasha was being Enver Pasha and led his followers into a disastrous series of frontal assaults that destroyed their unit. He was then hunted down and killed by Red Army forces. Three Basmachi commanders survived Enver Pasha, Salim Pasha, Enver's successor, Junaid Khan in the Karakum Desert in Turkmenistan, and Ibrahim Bek in Tajikistan. Salim Pasha and Ibrahim continued fighting for the Basmachi Amir, who was now in Afghanistan, and many Basmachi fighters survived by retreating into the mountainous rural regions like Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, or riding to and fro across the Afghan border. Salim Pasha in 1922, rode to Afghanistan and received the Amir's blessing for a large-scale attack against eastern Bukhara, which is now Tajikistan. 
The United several smaller Kozmaki units into an army of 5,000 and targeted not only Soviet garrisons, but Revcom members and local party workers. However, like Enver Pasha, Selim Pasha thought in a scale larger than his forces could manage and was surprised by the Soviets' improved tactics and ability. His united force survived from December 1922 to March 1923, and the Soviets shattered his units. He fled to Afghanistan and was later killed far from Central Asia by Kemalist secret police. While Selim Pasha and Ibrahim Bek recovered from Enver Pasha's death, Junaid Khan in Turkmenistan took the city of Kiva. So this would be the second time he's taken the city. Um, the first time is when he led a coup and then killed the real Khan and then put him in a puppet Khan. If you want to learn about that, you should check out our episode about the fall of the Kievan Amir. In October 1923, the Khorasan Soviet Republic made a huge m- mistake and they deprived the ulama of their responsibilities and called for the nationalization of Wakf clan. The Kievan merchants and ulama begged Junaid Khan to rescue them and defend Islam. He and his Kosmatki took control of the city of Kiva for a month. The Soviets sent a garrison to retake the city and drove his forces back into the Karakum Desert where Junaid Khan would remain until he fled to Iran in 1927. Part 1A The Soviet Military Response The Soviets took advantage of their victory by launching their own campaign in March 1923. This campaign was led by Red Army Commander and a hero of the Russian Civil War, Pavel Andrevich Pavlov. Pavlov had three objectives which proved devastating to the Bismatki. 1. Focus all attacks on the Bismatki base of operations instead of chasing them around the region. These three bases were the mountainous stronghold of Makhcha, the Lokai and Gisar valleys in the south, and mountainous Sarm in the east. These three areas would be attacked simultaneously so the Bismaki couldn't flee into each other's territories either for safety or to, to assist each other. 2. Increase his forces until they were strong enough to meet the task. Moscow granted his request for more support, and by 1923, he had 5,832 men, 222 machine guns, and artillery pieces in Tajikistan. 3. Sever the cord tying the cavalry to the infantry. Normally, cavalry was used to protect infantry and ride forward just enough to find the Bismaki or lead them into an ambush. Pavlov freed the cavalry so they could operate again as an independent force, allowing them greater independence and freedom of movement. Pavlov's methods proved successful in March 1923 when, when he took Makcha, a previously impossible objective for the Soviets. He succeeded because he ensured that all supplies were available when needed. His machine guns and artillery were assigned to pack trains and supplies were stockpiled on the samarkand Tenzikid line in advance, far away enough to be protected but close enough for supplies to be sent where they were needed. He also utilized local volunteers to serve as scouts, interpreters, and engineer laborers. Sarm fell shortly afterwards on July 29th after a 12-hour battle. Yuzel Maksum, the Basmatki in charge of the forces around Sarm, fled to Afghanistan with a slight wound on August 12th. The Gisar Lokai Valley continued to prove difficult to, to subdue, but as long as Salim Pasha remained in the region, the Soviets were able to exploit a rivalry between him and Ibrahim Bek to the detriment of both of their forces. Part 1b, the Soviet political, economic, and social response. By 1923, the Soviets realized they couldn't break the Bosmaki with military might alone. They needed to respond on the political, economic, and social front as well. 
To that end, the Soviets flooded the rural areas with Cheka, or OGPU, agents to flush out collaborators and convert supporters of the Basmaki to their cause. These conversions or alliances were heavily publicized affairs and often took place in open-air demonstrations, where Soviets and local actors alike gave big speeches in front of a large gathering, publicly professing their new alliance and friendship with one another. These speeches can't be taken at, f at face value, and even one Soviet claimed, quote, of course, one would not trust the sincerity of the, ba of the Bays, who welcomed the Soviet power and land reform. Still, their speeches show that the Bays realized their powerlessness. Quote is from Fotipo's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Cultures. One particularly painful conversion was Ibrahim Bek's own people, the Lokai, in December 1923. To add more salt to the wound, the Soviets also recruited a 60-man cavalry detachment of Lokai people to hunt Ibrahim. The assimilation of local leaders also extended to the Basmachi leaders themselves. A perfect example of this behavior is Ikhtiyaz Iunosev. Iunosev fought against the Red Army as a Basmachi leader, but was later hired as the head of, of the Soviet Mo Muslim Volunteer Detachment to fight against the Basmachi. During the Basmachi campaigns, he won two Red Banner medals and eventually became a member of the Communist Party. He was then named head of the administration department and commander of the Voluntary Detachment. A Soviet report about his abilities read, quote, His authority was based on his Soviet position and his Soviet distinctions. As the head of the administration department and voluntary detachment, he thought of himself as the absolute master. He formed his detachment as he wished, from his host people and from 30 members of his detachment. Six of them were Bais and Kulaks. Not a single arrest of a disenfranchised Bai in the region evaded him. In all cases, he put the arrested out on bail and tried to help him. He even participated in illegal searches, arrests, and extrajudicial shootings. End quote is from Fotipo's Kasim Bekova's book, Despite Cultures. Economically, the Soviets implemented the Food for Cotton Plan, which forbade farmers from planting anything but cotton in, in exchange for food. This meant that the Basmachi could no longer raid fields and had to extort food from their supporters. Tajikistan was already experiencing mass starvation and hoarding food was seen as anti-Soviet behavior. Soviets were fearful that if food was being reserved, it was for the Basmachi, often confiscated desperately needed food, leaving the locals at the mercy of their neighbors and whatever social programs the Tajik government was able to implement. While people feared the Basmachi, they also blamed the Soviets for the lack of food. One Tajik chieftain complained, quote, the government knows that the oral Cube region is full of Basmachi and that we suffer first from their treatment of us. Second, we suffer from high prices. Third, from expense for the Red Army soldiers who are defending us from Basmachi. People run away to the mountains when they see the Red Army soldiers. If grain costs five rubles on the market, the Red Army pays only one ruble, 40 kopecks. There are many deficiencies here. If some commissions would come and investigate things thoroughly, they would find a lot of material. And quote is from Botiko's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Cultures. The lack of food not only put a strain on the Basmachi's relations with the locals, but also put pressure on Basmachi commanders to prevent their soldiers from deserting because of starvation and dwindling prospects of success. The Soviets took advantage of this tension by issuing promises of amnesty. On March 15, 1925, the Tajik government promised to free all sentenced people 
people who were imprisoned for under two years or had already completed at least half of their sentences. They also promised to shorten current incarceration periods by one-third. They offered full amnesty and immunity to existing fighters if they surrendered between March 15th and June 15th, 1925. They proclaimed, quote, On this great day for Tajikistan, the Revolutionary Committee aims to return to peaceful work those workers and peasants who committed crimes due to their darkness and ignorance under the influence of Amir and Tsarist officials. We wish to give them a chance to redeem their guilt before the rule of workers and peasants. And quote is from Botiko's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Tortures. Of course, the Bismaki had to surrender their arms, rat out their collaborators, and publicly denounce their crimes. While the Soviets believed that if the state pardoned you, you wouldn't forget it and would feel beholden to the state, there were more practical reasons to grant mass amnesty. The Soviet state wasn't strong enough in Tajikistan to hold everyone in prison. Some prisons were already holding 300% over their mass capacity. They didn't have enough guards or food to feed the prison population. Despite their promises, the first few years of Tajikistan's existence was filled with with more executions of Bismakis than amnesties. Again, this is because of limited state capacity in Tajikistan. The high court didn't exist outside of a couple of tables which traveled with the judge, revolutionary committee members, and social police under Red Army Guard. Since they didn't have the resources, manpower, or institutional support, judges realized that the best way to handle the Bismaki was with quick show trials and executions. It also worked as a semi-military strategy in the Soviets' battle over the territory. One judge wrote, quote, Basmachi resistance demanded quick show trials and strict justice. Delay of an execution, not to mention the revision of capital pun- punishment, would undermine all our efforts in the fight against the Basmachi. During this month, we heard 70 cases, 45 of whose defendants were sentenced to death. End quote is from Botiko's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Tortures. Not all Basmachi were lucky enough to have a show trial. Many were killed in firefights or extrajudicial killings. Between 1925 and 1926, the OGPU shot 208 Basmaki supporters. From March 1925 to December 1925, the Red Army killed 48 Basmaki leaders and 1,423 Basmaki soldiers. However, the Soviets' ability to kill its enemies depended on cooperation from local leaders, and this wasn't always forthcoming. Many officials prevented trials or executions by not supplying translators, juries, or public defenders. However, this came at great risk to the people who delayed the trials. Many were executed as well. The violence alienated people, and the amnesties lost their appeal when it became clear that those who surrendered were left hungry, homeless, and destitute. Add clan disputes and personal rivalries, and there are many reasons for Bosmaki to switch sides, sometimes multiple times. Abdukalim explained why he collaborated with the Soviets and then abandoned them as follows. At the beginning, I was a Basmaki, and from your side, many good words were said, so we surrendered and gave up our guns and sat calmly in our houses. But all your talk turned out to be a lie, since we did not know what your rule was. Your rule actually made us Basmaki. The reason is that among us, there are many bad people, and each of us has many enemies, and so these bastards give you information that one or another person has weapons. You arrest these people only on the basis of their words, without asking people themselves. This is the only reason we became Basmaki again. He continued to complain to a Soviet commander that Mirza Abul Khan worked for your rule so hard that he did not receive any salary for 11 months. But today, Imam Ali Mutak, the messenger who is unrighteous, 
who does not accept Sharia law, informed us that he has two three-line rifles, two sabers, one Berdan rifle, and one revolver. He further wrote, If Soviet rule was just in reality, it would not intervene in everyone's business for the past two years. I mean, Basmachi resistance would have ceased to exist in the past two or three years. We have nothing but Allah and the Prophet. We have no guns, no finances, no soldiers to wage war. But because of fear for our lives, we run around without having any relation to your workers nor to your business. I swear by Allah and his Prophet that your rule made us Basmachi. Quote is from Botikho's Kasimbekova's book, The Spike. If the Soviets thought that it was impossible to find lo loyal cadre in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, Tajikistan made them want to tear their hair out. A Soviet representative in Tajikistan wrote, The Sharabad Revolutionary Committee was formed from the following people. The chair, Abdul Rashid, a Bai from the tribe Isan Hoja. His deputy was Abdul Taim, a Bai from the Badra Odli tribe. Judges from Isan Hoja. One representative from Badra Odli tribe. And a representative from the Red Army. Abdul Rashid was appointed as chair with the following reasoning. The leading organs of East Bukhara thought this appointment would appeal to Abdul Rashid's self-esteem, as he had fought against Ibrahim Bek for a long time, and would encourage him to fight against Basmachi with full energy and responsibility. But our hopes were not borne out. He supported the Basmachi. And quote is from Botikov's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Quotes. The Soviets ran into issues trying to punish the leaders they were collaborating with. Many times, Tajik citizens would try to defend their local leaders, as one Soviet commander wrote, quote, If a leader was arrested, people went to great lengths to get him out of jail, certifying their work against the Basmachi. End quote is from Botikov's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Cultures. Yet not all local leaders supported the Basmachi. Many found a way to fit it within the Soviet order. Maksum Abdulayev, a Soviet Muslim, wrote, When in 1924, Ibrahim Bek wrote me that if I joined him, he would make me a Bek of Kulab, I answered that Soviet rule had already made me a Bek. Soviet rule is strong, but you are an outlaw. End quote is from Botikov's Kasimbekova's book, Despite Cultures. Part 1C, Ibrahim Bek Counteroffensive. By September 1923, Ibrahim Bek was the last Basmachi commander standing in eastern Bukhara, and he retained enough strength to launch a counterattack. Ibrahim Bek attacked a garrison at Narin at the moment of Soviet recruitment turnover, assuming this would mean that the number of in inexperienced soldiers would be high. However, the recruits held until reinforcements could arrive, and they drove Ibrahim Bek back. Soviets claiming they killed 117 Basmachi commanders and 1,565 soldiers. The Soviets sent forces to occupy the land of Urta Kudai on the Soviet-Afghan border, making it harder for the Basmachi to slip to and fro. Pavlov worked hard to rip the roots of support out from underneath the Basmachi, effectively hurting their supplies and support. In 1926, the Soviets achieved what they thought was the final victory against the Basmachi. In March 1926, Red Army Commander Seaman Mikhailovich Budini launched an all-out assault against Ibrahim's remaining forces. Relying on Ferenza's tactics of flying columns and implementation of garrisons in key locations to cut Basmachi forces off from their supporters, Budini planned to beat Ibrahim Bek into submission. Because of Budini's tactics, Ibrahim Bek's forces faced the choice of starving to death in the mountains while being hunted down by the Soviet flying columns, or die while making a last stand against the Red Army forces. 
within the DSR and Lotai valleys. An interesting development was the introduction of the helograph stations and a permanently mobile field staff in the region. Radio wasn't available in 1926, but by using strategically placed helograph stations, Soviet forces were able to warn units of approaching Bakhmatsky, robbing the guerrilla soldiers of the element of surprise. Ibrahim Bep held on until the Soviets took 1,500 sheep from him, sheep he needed to feed his men. Without this desperately needed food source, Ibrahim was forced to flee into Afghanistan, ending the Bakhmatsky threat in Tajikistan. Part 2. Political Turmoil in Afghanistan and Tajikistan One of the reasons the Soviets were able to defeat the Bakhmatsky was the ability to win over the support of the local peoples via increased access to food and land, alleviating any fears that communism would sweep away long-held traditions and Islam, and forcing the Bakhmatsky to hurt their own supporters while looking for supply. However, by 1927, the Soviets had shot themselves in the foot by implementing increasingly unpopular measures such as the Hujum, the unveiling and liberation of women, which we discussed in episode, I think it's 48, the ending of the Islamic courts, the further reduction of watched lands, and the increased secularization of education, much of which was facilitated by the creation of the nation-states, which we discussed last episode, and some of these changes we'll also discuss in our next episode. Worst maybe was the forced collectivization uh, and the forced settlement of the nomadic populations, particularly in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. The campaign started in 1929 and inspired a new wave of anti-religious fervor among the Soviets. When the Soviets weren't forcing nomadic people to settle, they were closing mosques and madrasas and arresting ulamas. Collectivization nationalized all land and forcefully resettled nomadic and semi-nomadic rural populations as the Soviets saw fit. It would have tragic consequences in, in Kazakhstan and in Tajikistan and Turkmenistan. It provided the spark for one last hurrah by the Bakhmatsky. After pushing the Bakhmatsky into Afghanistan, the Soviets had a hard time keeping them in Afghanistan. In 1927, one OGPU officer wrote, quote, the border is not secure, we have no guns or people to guard it, the militia is drunken and immoral, it is impossible to guard the border, it is impossible to stop Bakhmachi groups and to prevent damage to agricultural campaigns. And quote is from Botiko's Kasim Batova's book, Despite Cultures. It is easy to overstate the threat the Karan Amir Muhammad Alim Khan presented to the Soviet Union. He had been staying in Afghanistan since his ouster in 1921, and so much had happened in the region since he fled. Even if people wanted him to return at one point, that desire had disappeared a long time ago, except for the most die-hard of emirates. Still, he was able to provide some support to Ibrahim Bek and the Bagmachi who fled to Afghanistan. Ibrahim used the time in Afghanistan to extort money from the Bhutan refugees who had settled in Afghanistan and to restructure his command. He centralized his command, granting him a better understanding of what his supplies looked like and how many men he actually had. He also improved communications between his men in the field and himself and himself and the emir. Despite signing a treaty of neutrality and non-aggression in 1921, the Afghan government had always tolerated the Bagmachi. This became a problem in 1924, when northern Afghanistan underwent a power struggle. Ibrahim took advantage and made camp in Urkachudai Island. The Soviets were so freaked out by that, they invaded Afghan territory in 1925. Now, 
Urta Tudai had an Afghan garrison that had mostly turned a blind eye to the Bismaki. When the Soviets invaded, they actually disarmed and occupied the Afghan garrison. This scared the Afghan government, prompting them to sign another treaty of neutrality and non-aggression. A year later, a popular uprising would make the treaty void and end any attempts to push the Bismaki out of northern Afghanistan. The Bismaki would take advantage of the political turmoil, and in spring 1929, the Tatar Amir called together the remaining Basmaki to him. He issued a decree placing leadership of the remaining forces under Ibrahim Bek's command with the intention of invading Tajikistan and reclaiming it from the Soviets. Part 3, The Resurrection, the 1929 Campaign In spring 1929, the Basmaki tested the units stationed on the Soviet-Afghan border, and in April, Huzel's Maksum of Darm slipped across the border with 15 men to connect with supporters in eastern Tajikistan. His purpose was to raise local support and recruit and prepare for the arrival of Ibrahim Bek with the main Basmachi force. Maksum raised 200 men and led several attacks against Darm, achieving small minor victories. The overall Soviet commander in Central Asia, General P.E. Dynbeko, issued several emergency measures to address growing threats. He ordered the raising of local self-defense units in eastern Tajikistan and increased the local political work. He even tried to manipulate the local antagonisms within the population to defeat the Basmachi, believing that the many cattle breeders of the region would hate the Basmachi for their requisitioning efforts. Despite these attempts to engage with local actors, the main Soviet strategy was still military in nature. The Russians countered Basmachi hit-and-run tactics by establishing militarized zones and used artillery and air raids to destroy villages suspected of collaborating with the Basmachi. Pacheta arrested and deported 270,000 Tajiks suspected of collaborating with the Basmachi. During the Red Army's occupation, they burnt Dushanbe, Andazan, Namengan to the ground and damaged several other villages. In total, 1,200 villages were burnt to the ground. Huzel Maksum's forces of now 800 men led an attack against the city of Darm and then the neighboring airfield. The Soviets defeated, defended the airfield with 16 men waiting for reinforcements that would arrive by air and a 75-man cavalry regiment. Five airplanes arrived at 6 a.m. on April 23, 1929, unloading 40 men carrying machine guns and ammunition. Huzel Maksum's forces fled, abandoning Darm. On May 3rd, Badly wounded, Maksum returned to Afghanistan. Part 3A, Afghanistan's Problem The Soviets' retaliation against Darm was swift. They set up special OGPU campaigns to ferret out the people who supported Maksum. They held special tribunals and several people were executed. Despite these setbacks, Ibrahim Bek's forces were able to cross the Afghan-Soviet border with ease. The Soviets were so concerned over the incursions that they seriously considered an invasion of Afghanistan to place a puppet government on the throne. They even sent a force of 800 to 1,200 Red Army soldiers dressed as Afghans in support of one of the Afghan warlords vying for leadership, but had to retreat when they were stopped by the army and their candidate abdicated. The situation in Afghanistan stabilized and the new government under Nadir Khan left the Basmachis alone. However, the Soviets gave up on diplomacy and started to chase the Basmachi across Afghanistan's border, sometimes crossing 40 miles into the country before withdrawing. Nadir Khan was forced to act, and he dispatched 
Sardar Shah Mahmud, the Afghan army's commander-in-chief, to deal with the Basmachi problem. He also started negotiations with the Soviets to renew the 1926 Treaty of Neutrality and Non-Aggression. General Mahmud demanded the Basmachi disband, and Ibrahim Bat replied by saying he was going to unite with the Uzbek and Tajiks in northern Afghanistan and create a nationalistic Uzbek-Tajik government independent of Afghan control. In December 1930, Mahmud entered the Northern Territory. Through the spring of 1931, he led a large-scale campaign against Ibrahim Bat, and he claimed several major cities, but did never capture Ibrahim Bat himself. Instead, on March 1931, they offered Ibrahim Bat a chance to incorporate his forces into the Afghan army. He refused, and in 1931, he led 800 men into, into Tajikistan for a final invasion. In total, he had a command of 2,000 men. He swept into Tajikistan armed with reliable intelligence and the momentum of a sudden invasion. He executed pro-Soviet officials and locals, blew up several warehouses, state farms, and railroad lines. The people of Tajikistan initially supported his uprising but grew disenchanted with his disconnected political and ideological ideas. Trying to rally people around an emir that had been deposed for about a decade and the return of feudalism held little appeal to most people. Too much had changed to go back to the old ways, and Ibrahim Bat had been too disconnected from his own people to fully understand what they wanted. Anyone who tried to join him from Afghanistan ran into Soviet patrols and suffered severe losses. The Soviets created a special unit of OGPU local volunteers and Komsomol members to hunt Ibrahim Bat down. In May, the Red Army offered amnesty to any Basmachi members who surrendered, causing 12 leaders and 653 men to abandon the Basmachi ranks. Ibrahim Bat was left with only 15 men in the foothills of Bagatad, avoiding assassination attempts and betrayals. On June 23, 1931, while attempting to cross a river, he was betrayed by locals and captured by Soviet forces. They sent him to Tajikistan, where he was executed, officially ending the Basmachi guerrilla movement. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and my website, www.transwarroom.com. Please join my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash aoawarfare to support my research and future projects. Until next time, wear a mask, organize with your community, and stay safe.